Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analyst, the only podcast that thinks Brentford might just go and win it all. My name is Cameron McDonald, and I spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. My co-host Rupert Meadows has written a podcast about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Human Sport, but above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam, and a brief return to an old format this week. Usually we won't be going through each and every game, but as this was the first week of the season, it's a good chance to set the stage for 2021-22. There's a lot to talk about, and let's kick off with one of the spicier matches when Leeds took on United at Old Trafford. And a spicy game it was, although almost sort of like predictable. I think everyone was kind of expecting this was going to be a bit of a, a screamer, a bit of a big thriller of a game um, after sort of the, the showdown they had last season, the, the 6-2 I think it was. And I think just these two teams, there's something about the way that they you know, react to each other. It really brings the best out of United. And Leeds, although they only scored one in this game, they are a sort of give-as-good-as-they-get team. And as we saw a lot of times last season, they were capable of sort of playing really tight games. But when another team was really coming at them, they didn't go, let's sit back. They would run back at them as well. And I did think, like, in this game, were it not for a pair of bad-slash-unlucky finishes from Rafinha, it could have been, like, a 5-3. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think... Uh... Gutting as well that um, Luke Ayling's goal amounted for nothing because that was a real stunner. Um, I'll, I'll confess though, I actually thought that this might be a little bit more of a stalemate like it was uh, when they played each other at Ellen Road and it ended nil-nil rather than the 6-2 that we saw at Old Trafford last year in December. Um, so yeah, I definitely was, uh, was blown away by um, just the amount of goals that were scored. I mean, some incredible finishing on both sides, definitely. The amount of goals and also the nature of the goals, because United, you know, they didn't have Marcus Rashford playing here, who, you know, had I had his ups and downs last season, but he's normally one of the typical goal scorers. Cavani was great at the back end of the season. He wasn't in this game. Martial wasn't wasn't involved for the whole game either. Um, it was Mason Greenwood who came in with one goal, who's the only recognised forward. And then bizarrely, Fred and a Bruno Fernandes hat-trick. And you would think, oh, OK, Bruno Fernandes hat-trick, they must have got three penalties. All open play, which is not even one penalty. And they were all absolute stunners. Yeah, Um, two with his left foot as well. He's not a a guy typically known for scoring with his weak foot. Um, But yeah, it just seemed to click for United, and definitely they they've set out their stalls early on. I mean, players like as you said, Mason Greenwood leading the line had a really good game, and obviously we'll talk about Paul Pogba a little later on. It's interesting with um, sort of some of these players because you look at United and it's a funny thing at the start of the season because sometimes when you look at a really big win, I think I thought the same thing a little bit with um, Chelsea's game against Crystal Palace, albeit against Crystal Palace, but you sort of kind of go, how much do you change this? I mean, like the defensive thing, obviously you would change, but the the setup for United, uh, like one of the really impressive parts of this game was Paul Popper getting four assists. And that was a real sort of like glimpse of the Paul Pogba that I think we all know exists somewhere there and we don't really see him that often and I don't think we've ever seen him for more than four or five games barring maybe back in his Juventus days but there's always been the sense and I think this is maybe what fuels you Graham Sooners is on that he's not fully living up to that all the time uh, although I suspect it's something else that drives Graham Sooners but um, you know <laughs> but uh, but uh, you know he did show a bit of a glimpse and what was interesting was that he was playing on the wing he was playing on the wing in much the same way that Blaise Matuidi often played on the wing for um, for Juventus, for example, or sometimes France. And I think it's pretty clear that when you get these players like Rashford and Martial and Sancho coming back into the eleven more regularly, Paul Pogba's probably going to be moved back to that sort of number six slash number eight position that he's been playing for for the most part at United. And you wonder if that's going to hurt him and sort of strip away. It, it, it's kind of you know what I mean. It's kind of one of those things where you're like, oh, they've almost they've stumbled onto the magic formula by mistake here. Do they want to change it up too much? I mean, you say they've stumbled onto it there. I think you probably could have just uh, pulled out one of the uh, one of the matches in Serie A when he was playing for Juventus and, and work it out from there that, wow, how crazy is it that he works well when he's given a free-roaming role? I mean, I think um, quite a few people might have uh, told you that before this game. But yeah, I, I wouldn't yeah. mind too much if he does play back in midfield as a number six, as long as he is allowed the freedom to move about the pitch. Yeah, because that's what was good about this. He was nominally, you know, if you looked at the team sheet on the left, left mid, but he was playing very, very centrally. He was getting on of license to roam and he was doing really well in sort of the 
the way that he can do when he's allowed off the leash to sort of, and which is what happens when he plays for France alongside Kante, because Kante obviously does the, the job of two men in midfield, which allows Pogba to do whatever he likes. And when he's allowed to sort of roam free and sort of wander around with the ball, he can pass really well. He has a really good arsenal of, of passing skills. He has the vision to find them. And, you know, he, he got four assists and the assists were quite distinctive. It was a really, really good game from him. Um, and I thought, you know, long may it continue because it's great to see a player look like that. It's definitely good. And, and as you kind of have hinted at there, you've got to give credit to McTominay and Fred behind him for providing the stable base in midfield that allowed him to, you know, kick on um, and, and have the performance he did. Because a lot of the time, um, much like Kevin De Bruyne sometimes in Man City, he just feels like they're trying to do literally everything. You know, there are times where Pogba is the guy who plays plays the first ball out to the wing and then also the guy that has to get into the box and get his head on it and also the guy that needs to be tracking back and, and dribbling past players. And if he's just allowed to focus on his creation, then he's an absolute delight to watch. But it's taken Manchester United and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer so long to work that out or to ca- try and capture that magic that he has displayed before. Um, and as you say, yeah, hopefully they can, um, you know, realise that moving forward, that's how you do it. It would just be so good to see Paul Pogba playing next to like a dedicated top quality defensive midfielder because Fred and McTominay, both of them have their games every now and again. I think they have their, their games here, but I think by and large, and this isn't exactly a hot take, but they're not quite at the level that you want if you're going to try and win a league with a team. Um and I think you could win a league with Pogba in a team. I mean, he has won several leagues in the past himself. And he's also, you know, won a World Cup, for example. But he needs the right support in midfield. And if they could get, like, one really good, no-nonsense defensive midfield that's still on Paul Pogba, it'd just be... Or, or even not Pogba at United. Obviously, Gary Neville was alluding after the game that Paul Pogba might be angling for a move. There have been some rumours coming out this week that he's been offered a really, really big contract by PSG if he commits now to sign for them as a free agent next summer. Um, so maybe sort of something like that playing somewhere else will be where he unlocks his full potential. Because I think he is just such a great player that we don't see all the time. And it's not something I blame him for really at all. Um, there's so much sort of other stuff that goes on. And obviously at United, Paul Popper is not the first and will not be the last player to not realise his full potential, uh, at least in this current era. But yeah, I think we saw today what he can be. And I just hope we see more of it wherever it is. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I'm kind of torn because I hope we see more of him because he is so fun to watch. But I also kind of hope that it's not at Man U. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's just um, I agree with you that McTominay and Fred are maybe not the kind of players to, to hit a level of consistency that Pogba would need to be able to also play consistently in the way that he did against Leeds. But also the flip side of that is that Leeds really didn't do enough to close down um, man use midfield and, and there were times where Leeds capitalised on the amount of space that was in the midfield when hitting on the counter but there were also very much times where they just left themselves so exposed and they really struggled this game at times and, and they just got carved apart they really did and Leeds they kind of remind me of like you know I can't I can't think of the example of what this is but you know when you see like those uh those like superpower movies and the villain is like a guy who like he gets hit with something and then he suddenly adapts to be strong against it and that's what Leeds yeah. like remind me of as a football team at the, at the start of last season they were so vulnerable to certain things and then as the season went on they actually started to become really good at negating those things like by the end of the season they could put on a really competent low block as good as anyone in the league and it's not something they had in their arsenal at the start of the season um and i think maybe this is just a thing they do every season maybe they haven't sort of taken many of the lessons they got from last season and it'll be the same thing because they didn't really look that up that that, you know up to the standards we've come to expect of them i think it was a sort of this result was a story of two things united being very good and leeds not quite being as good as we thought they might be um especially because yeah at the end of the season they, they weren't having these ridiculous high scoring games so often um well, it's funny that you should mention that because um, when Manchester United beat Leeds 6-2 last time, Paul Pogba did not feature either uh, in the starting lineup or coming on from the bench. So that would definitely support your theory that Leeds are good at adapting to things that they've seen before because, you know, they hadn't seen this Pogba before. They definitely hadn't. 
Um, I think it's going to be interesting to see how both of these teams go on. It was definitely one of a a good way to open things up um, in terms of you know on on the Saturday, not on the uh, on the Friday, because we had a, a slightly different game on the Friday, which was arguably an even more fitting game to open up the Premier League season on Friday the thirteenth, no less, and that was Arsenal being as Arsenal as possibly Arsenal uh, and losing two 0 to newly promoted Brentford. Yeah, I mean, this was just such a fun way to as introduce Brentford into the Premier League, and Premier League fans have kind of heard rumblings of this exciting club that um, you know has all this this cool stuff going on around it, but hadn't actually had the chance to watch them play in a Premier League match yet, and they just were so gritty and determined and deserving of their Tuna win. Yes, they were. But again, much like we were just talking about United with Leeds, I feel like it was a story of, of two halves. Brentford being very, very good and taking their chance as well and could have had more. And Boemo, I think, fluffed like two big chances that could have made it 3 or 4-0 um, at various times in the match. But also just Arsenal looking absolutely shocking. Um, and I think to call this match a surprise would to be sort of, I think, a friend of mine sent me something from the like sky betting expert before the game and even like the sky betting expert whose like job it is to sort of look at the probabilities have been like yeah Brentford probably win this 2-1 and I think that's sort of where we've got to with Arsenal obviously there are a lot of factors in, in, in as much as like it's Brentford's first game in the Premier League since 1946-47 which is a huge thing for them it's under in, in a new stadium fans are back for one of the first times so there are a lot of things that would have boosted Brentford and indeed all the home teams but specifically Brentford because they were sort of new to the league um but I just thought it, it was made all the easier by the fact that Arsenal just sort of lay down and accepted their pounding. They did accept their pounding. And I guess you've got to look at, at least in part, the fact that, you know, they were, it was a young team. It was a young Arsenal team that lined up. Um, and there were times where, you know, they created good chance for, for themselves. Like Emil Smith-Rowe put himself in a really good position to take a shot, but then, you know, doesn't have the experience, doesn't have, um, you know, the ability yet to to finish it and just hit it straight to the keeper and it's telling that Arsenal in theory statistics wise dominated this game they had 65% possession the lion's share of the shots the shots on goal the corners all, all kind of those metrics but just didn't really look too like threatening at all yeah and I think it's a big part of what you just said there I mean their front four Nicola Pepe was the oldest player on the right side, 26, so even then he's not exactly been around the block. But then you had Emil Smith-Rowe, Gabriel Martinelli on the left, and Foller and Balogun up front, so all young kids. And you've sort of got to question why that's happened. And again with Arsenal, it's starting to come out another incident of players getting mysterious illnesses. The morning started, and we heard that Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang had fallen ill, and you know, on the face of it, just that you go, okay, kind of weird. There was no rumours of that, like at leading up to it. You would think the club doctors would have known and that's something playing around, but you know, maybe Lacazette will play. And then Lacazette later that same day mysteriously fell ill and you were like, hmm, something's interesting here. And apparently now, and we'll have to wait and see if this is confirmed or not, but there were a lot of reports coming out that the two are ill through to the Chelsea game as well. So I don't know if they have mysteriously COVID or something, or just it's, a, it's an illness that isn't really an illness, because some other reports have suggested it's a little bit of a strike. And it's getting to the point with Arsenal where this is not the first time it's happened. You get the sense that it's not the last time it'll happen under this manager. The players are starting to fall out of love with him. And it's an interesting thing with Arteta because... He's a very young manager, and almost suitingly so, he seems to have the love of all of the young players, like the Emil Smith-Rose and the Bakayo Sackers and the Balagans and all those players have a lot of good to say about him. But the more sort of senior players and the older heads in the squad have a habit of falling out with him. Hector Bellerin apparently is also desperate to leave the club this window, um, having been sort of an Arsenal fan favourite for years and a real club man. Loads of, and of course Arteta's teammate, loads of these older players are just falling out with the manager, and it just... The, the joke that everyone was making after this Brentford game was that obviously, you know, Arsenal were at the bottom of the league and everyone's going, oh, well, get used to that position. And it does make me wonder how Arsenal are going to do this season. Is if they do stick with Arteta, the football is not great, the players are not happy, and I don't see it getting better based on either of those two things. Yeah, I know what you mean. It almost feels like, barring a major breakout from one of these young stars they're going to struggle to, to get points in a lot of these games if, you know, this game against Brentford is any indication of how they're going to be playing moving forward. I mean, it's it's frightening uh, to be an Arsenal fan at the moment, especially because it looks like Aubameyang and Lacazette could be out the door or could be pushing to be out the door. Lacazette's nearing the end of his contract, so either he continues to protest and then leaves on a free or they let him out the door and they've only got a few weeks to 
to sign a replacement. And obviously, you know, clubs will be aware of that and will, um, you know, push them to a premium for any of their players. It's just going to be a difficult few weeks, definitely. And yeah, this match against Chelsea is a derby. It's not coming around at the right time. It's, it's not a good look to have when it's multiple players. Like we've talked about Harry Kane a lot in recent weeks and him not turning up for training. And that is something that you can weather as a club, even if it's a top player. If it's one player, if it's one player doing something, then it's a player issue. It's the player is being, however you want to spin it, he's being greedy, he's being ambitious. Whatever you want to say, it's a player issue. When it's multiple players, especially given that we saw this with Ozil last season, it's no longer a player issue, it's a club issue. Something is seriously wrong with that club that is causing these players to do this. Yeah, and they definitely played like a a team that had been caught out or had been surprised um, by the events of the day. You know, the fact that there was no prior warning to the players dropping out. Um, Do you know what I mean? It it kind of felt like there was a lack of, not a lack of preparation, but a lack of, I don't know, mentality. Yeah, well, I mean, this is the thing about sort of the last minute notification. If you know that Aubameyang and Lacazette are sort of not playing on the Monday, you can prepare for that. The rest of the team knows that's going to happen. Maybe Fuller and Balogun gets in a, an extra few half hours at the end of the day on the training pitch. It didn't. Look, it looked like everyone had been caught by surprise uh, by this news just as much as we had been. Um, and as a result, Arsenal have lost their first game and go into that derby against Chelsea not in the best possible position. Well, it is what it is, and uh, yeah, hold a candle for Arsenal. Hopefully they can turn things around uh, as quickly as they uh, went south. Um, Speaking of a club that has had players mysteriously absent, let's move on to Spurs versus City, where results went the other way. Yeah, and this was such a narrative-y game. I I felt robbed that we didn't get Harry Kane featuring, obviously because he's never not trained and just mysteriously was unavailable for this game and I did think like if City win this game and then end up winning the title by a small margin for me if I'm leading up the FA or the Premier League the investigation's going in um because he's basically decided not to go but uh you know my conspiracy theory didn't really need to hold any weight because Spurs managed to win this game to the surprise of everyone but again maybe we shouldn't have been that surprised because it was a City loss in the way that we've learned City like to lose Definitely. And um, yeah, you know, they they pushed hard at the beginning. They were in control of the game. Um, they didn't capitalise on their chances. Spurs grew into the match and eventually ran out what you have to kind of say, you know, the rightful winners on the balance of the 90 minutes. Um, I definitely uh, enjoyed seeing this tweet. I don't know if you came across it, but um, it's uh, so a man you... Um, uh, channel on Twitter um, posted this that says, I've just realised that Pep called Spurs the Harry Kane team, lost to the Harry Kane team without Harry Kane four times, offered Spurs 150 million to become the Harry Kane team, lost to the Harry Kane team without Harry Kane again, and still has no hair. <laughs> I just did that. Oh, oh. That, that tweet went from like interesting to just golden. Just, just slap that bald man right <laughs> in his bald pate. Yeah, no, it was it, it was interesting because yet again, yeah, we you know, City had so much of the ball, so many chances and just couldn't capitalize on it. And I think they still will be favorites to win the league because this sort of performance the thing about City is that over the course of a league season, this sort of performance will be enough against the majority of teams in the league, because everyone who is sort of below fourth. But it does still cast a doubt for me over their Champions League ambitions because when they're still playing these top teams, if they if they don't have a striker, I mean, this was so classic. Mares will sometimes turn on to be a really good finisher, but was just not there today. He just was a bit shy on a few of, the, um, of those chances. Grealish similarly was making a lot of chances, but there was no one for it. A few of the times they were crossing the ball into the box, and I was like, "Who is that for?" Ferran Torres. Yeah, I mean, they—they, they, I mean, they just look like a team without with a component missing, which is exactly what they are at the moment. Um, and Fernandinho's ability to exert influence on onto games is waning because he's old as hell now and they realistically need to make one or two key signings if in my opinion they're going to um you know challenge for the title i think that on the face of it at the moment it's between liverpool and chelsea yeah well it's, it, i mean that's the thing isn't it because i i would say probably just based on my 
I mean, I'll have to have a bit more of a think of it, but just off the back, they, the fact they won the league last season and have added Jack Grealish, it makes me think that they're favourites because I just feel like a lot of teams will sort of get flattened by them. But you're right. I mean, you know, Liverpool and Chelsea have both started to look stronger this season than they did last season. Obviously, Chelsea with Thomas Tuchel coming in halfway through last season and improving, Lukaku being added into that mix, Liverpool coming back with Van Dijk going to be here for, for, it looks like, the full season. I mean, I say it looks like, ho- hopefully he'll be here for the full season and doesn't have a, another horror injury. And I've also added players like even Canate in there even Manchester United are looking a lot stronger than they did last season and you know we've seen them in one game without Jaden Sancho or Raf Varane so you've got to imagine that when those two are sort of getting in there and play more frequently it's only going to improve on the side that finished second last year so I think yeah it's not a foregone conclusion I think City without a striker are not guaranteed to win the league and it if they don't manage to sign Harry Kane I feel like maybe they should just try and sign any striker, really. It's, it's, it's one of those things with City, because they're so creative and they're so good at creating chances that just need someone to finish. I feel like, and I, tell me if this is a hot take or not, someone like Olivier Giroud would have done a job there? I don't think it's a hot take at all. I mean, that's literally his job, is to be kind of that auxiliary, like, taking over striker. Kind of like an Ed and Dzeko that criminally underrated, but comes in and does just a great job. Um, okay, okay, that's not hot enough. How about this? I think... Imagine you didn't hear the last 15 seconds. I think Grant Holt could do a job there. Is that a hot thing? <laughs> that I will not support. <laughs> that outrageous claim. Um, to be fair, I don't hate it. I don't hate it. Could Ricky Lambert still do a job? Maybe. Just, just like <laughs> a, a big classic. Because there's all this. Like, I feel like sometimes people get a bit too clever by half. And obviously Pep is the, the emperor of that. But a lot of the time people sort of talk about this with like... You know, it, it it all started when people were like, oh, you know, wingers, they've got to put in that defensive work. And obviously, yes, if a winger can put in a defensive shift, that'd be great. But if you have a really expressive, amazing winger, then you want them to sort of do that. Or attacking midfield as well. The, the term luxury player, and it is a term I agree with, sometimes gets applied to players that the beauty of their game is that they are a luxury player. And if you let them fulfill that luxury, they will do really amazing things for you. It's kind of like we were just talking about like Pogba. Pogba. Yeah, 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 exactly. If you, if you try and say to Paul Pogba, like, all right, mate, do the defensive grind grind then you know he might do that and sort of serve that role but you're going to rob him of that other ability and I kind of feel in much the same way about this whole idea of like the modern center forward that needs to sort of like press high up the pitch and be really good at dropping back and do all this and have his defense you know defending from the front and it's like okay great if you can do that dot 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 without sacrificing the goals because ultimately a center forward should be doing just that scoring goals and everything else should be massively secondary well, yes and no. I mean, they just need to fit the the profile of like what position the manager wants them to play in. You know, Roberto Firmino doesn't score the most goals in the league. He's not going to top the charts, but the the role that he has in the squad, which is to be be good defensively and to allow the wingers to shine, is so much more valuable to the team than I would argue. You know, someone that is just there to score goals. It it really just depends on on what the team is trying to do tactically. Um, yeah, I, I, true. I would say that that is probably the exception rather than the rule, though. There are only a handful of teams that have done stuff at the top level successfully with a false nine. I can think off the top of my head of Barcelona with Lionel Messi playing as a false nine, and he was still a false nine that scored a hell of a lot of goals. And sure. Liverpool with Firmino. Maybe well, Madrid I'm with up. Benzema? He wasn't really a fight. Like, I, I know he sort of did a lot of the, the, the grind work to allow the wingers to bomb forwards, but he was still a good goal scorer. He wasn't doing so much of the Firmino. Like, I can't really think of a lot of other teams that have done it as successfully. Even when someone like Bayern Munich or Germany have tried to do that with Thomas Muller, it's miles less effective than when, for Bayern Munich, Lewandowski, or for Germany, someone like Miroslav Klose comes in. It's a... It's something that I think you need a very specific set of players to work with. And maybe Pepper's going to try and find those players and morph Grealish into some sort of Frankenstein nine and a half and we'll all be wrong by the end of the season. Oh no, Franken nine. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. But it, it, it just seems like people try and be a bit too clever by half. Yes, if your striker is already scoring 25 goals, then maybe go, hey, okay, fine, score 22, but also help press from the front. But you go too far and you get sort of what we saw with Harry Kane uh, at the Euros, and you get a striker that has all the talent in the world, but is too busy thinking about other areas of the game to do that. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't necessarily disagree with you. Um, I I do have one thing to, to, to pose to you, though. Um, you said there that, you know, Jack Grealish is coming in, a great new addition and they've strengthened in a way that will encourage them to to get to the title. Why is that? Why do you think that Jack Grealish as an addition is going to elevate them? 
I mean, it's, it's, it's a weird one, isn't it? Because in a sense, he's more of what they already have. I do think he is a very, very good player, and I do think that we haven't had the chance to see him play with an elite suite of players. Obviously, Villa did do very well last season, they improved a lot, and just looking at the difference between Jack Grealish in 1920 and Jack Grealish in 2021 Villa, that to me suggests that the better players he plays with, the better he will look. Which seems obvious, but it's not always so black and white, especially with with attacking players. Um, And we were sort of robbed of the chance to see him do that for for enough time with England, really, which would have been a nice little preview to see him play with with that group of players. I do still think that City have the same number one problem, which is not having a centre forward. But at the same time, I just think in terms of how City, t- like when you think about City winning the league last season, they didn't beat Manchester United, they didn't beat Chelsea. I want to say they lost to Spurs once, they lost to Liverpool once, maybe or drew to Liverpool once. A lot of the big teams they had a very similar performance to what they had against Spurs, but it's just they just that rolled over everyone else. They'll just roll over everyone else, and in those games, I think Jack Grealish will be. You know, he'll love being part of the eighty-four pass move that scores a goal against Norwich, for example, and then yeah, yeah, do all that. While I do agree with that, I just think, you know, you talk about last season. Um, at what point last season did you think to yourself, wow, City could really do with another winger on the bench to bring on? Or, <laughs> a winger that can play like the eight. No, no, I, I know City what you're saying. City really need the introduction of someone like Jack Grealish to, to turn this game around. I just don't see it. And I, this is not a discredit to Jack Grealish. I think he is an unbelievable player and I really like him. I think he's so talented. But I'm just looking at their their transfer, um, you know what what they've done in the window so far. They bought two wingers. They bought some random guy from um, Brazilian league for like nine million. Then they bought Jack Grealish and they brought in a new backup keeper. And I just it just feels like Chelsea of like five, circa five six seven years ago when they were just stockpiling attacking midfielders and they weren't looking at the root of the problems, which was not allowing them to play well as a team and. I look at this game and I recognise that, yes, this is more of the same for City because, as you say, you know, they didn't necessarily win these games last year. But I do also just wonder, is this year going to be a transitionary year for City? Because, you know, Fernandinho's influence is is waning and they need to replace Sergio Aguero and that's not going to be easy. Yeah, I know what you mean, but I, I just feel like at least in a league format... City have so much money and so much quality. And it was the same with Pep at Bayern, for example, where obviously they weren't as expensive as City, but relative to the Bundesliga, which has a a lot less investment than the Premier League. They just put so much money that any old mad shit will work. And it did happen last season where they played basically the whole season without a striker. And yeah, my gut feeling was to say that like a well-organised side like a Chelsea or a well-drilled Liverpool that sort of got all their full squad is going to do better than them over the course of a season. Who have both strengthened. Who have both strengths, and I wouldn't write them off at all. But at the same time, like I feel like in, in a league format, City just they they just keep throwing money at it until they can overcome any ridiculous, you know, tactical inadequacies as they have done in the past. It doesn't work so much in a knockout format as we've also seen, but in a league format, I think it's it's not by mistake they've won like four of the last five titles. Yeah, no, reasonable. I mean, they yeah, they definitely do uh, typify the expression throwing money at the problem. But it's going to be an interesting narrative to watch going forward. So whether or not you know City do actually um, manage to you know pull their socks up and and get going as they did last season and just start steamrolling teams. Um, but let's not get too bogged down and move on to well, before before we do. Let's let's not talk too much about the losing team. Let's let's chat about Spurs for just a second before we do. We've, we've oh, given yeah. Pep and City all, all, all the time <laughs> in the world there, despite not having won the game. Um, and Spurs actually did manage to win the game without Spurs, uh, without Kane. Kane, Spurs, synonymous. God, Freudian. Um, <laughs> um, and I thought they looked really good in this game. I thought Yafet Tanganga looked top, top quality. Uh, obviously, Hyungmin Son looked fantastic. I thought it was, ironically, the first player that his goal made me think of was Gareth Bale, like 13-14. Uh, like you know how he scored like eight of those goals where he was sort of drifting in? Just and you cut just, in and just cut in, them, and yeah. you were like, you were watching the defence, you were like, don't give him that space, don't give him that space, and then just whips it into the far post. Um, off his left foot, which was a really, really, really good goal. Um, and Stefan Bergwijn should have, Stephen Bergwijn should have made it too as well, um, and, and was a little bit unlucky not to, or a little bit of a bad finish. And I think it's interesting to see how, we just talked about there, about how, you know, Pep Guardiola is the man with all the gear and no idea, as it were. Um, whereas Nuno has come in, and he's been with Spurs 
about six weeks worth of training and he looks to have established a style with them really really quickly a lot of the time when new managers go in we sort of go oh well how long is it going to take them to sort of turf out the old managerial style and bring in the new one but interestingly one of the big things we started hearing out of the Spurs camp last season was that Jose Mourinho there didn't really have that much of a defined style at least in, in attacking phases and all of them were still sort of holding on to the Pochettino attacking training so he seems to have established a style with them really quickly it doesn't seem massively glamorous so far but Based on this, it is effective. Well, this is the kind of thing um, that, that sometimes happens when you get a change in manager that comes in and it, it sometimes creates this kind of Goldilocks effect, which is um, when, say, an attacking manager who has built their team um, to be really good in transitions and things like that is then replaced by a defensive manager and he then, you know, massively shores up the defence and then for a season or so, they still remember how to attack. Um, and so they they managed to become a really balanced team, and that could well be the case this year for Spurs. I mean, while you say there that Mourinho didn't necessarily have much of a style at times, I do think that the work that he and Pochettino and Spurs as a club have done to build the squad has been really impressive. I mean, for example, bringing in Pierre-Emil Hoiberg last year was just a masterstroke, um, and I think they got him for free uh, because he's just so important and influential in their midfield and they've got these great players like Tanganga coming through and you know Kyungmin Son is still there and they've kept him on side which is really important um, and after the game you just heard him talking about how everyone's really happy so I am impressed with them and I think that it could be a good season it could be a, a better season than we might imagine they would have without Kane yeah yeah I mean it'll be interesting to see if he how the saga ends but if he does come back they'll do good obviously uh, or, or you know, they'll do better obviously uh, but it seems like even without him Nuno has maybe got things figured out it's a very small sample size but it's a sample size against Manchester City so you're not going to get much harder starts to the league um, well looking... that is uh, that is very true um, final thing I would add is that um, this is just like a Daniel Levy wet dream because they still have Kane City are desperate to have him especially because they lost uh, and looked so toothless in attack and they can just completely, you know, hold them over a barrel um, to get this player and, and just squeeze every last million out of them. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't wouldn't be surprised if they also reinvest some of that. And it could be an exciting year for them. I'm almost surprised that at the end of this game after Spurs had won, in order to sort of rub Pep's face and even more, that we didn't see Daniel Levy pop up wearing a wig, like wearing a really thick toupee. Like a bald wig, or... No, no, because he is already bald. <laughs> so in order to flex his hair that he doesn't have. But I think there's there's something particularly special about a bald man wearing a bald wig. <laughs> the understudy. Um, could, well, could well have been uh, a nice moment, but Daniel Levy, not known for his sense of humour. Uh, certainly not. Uh, looking at Watford versus Aston Villa, a game that I think most people thought was going to be all right, maybe like a little bit of an exciting side to see Watford and some of their new players come up and Villa seeing how they cracked on with this new sweep, but certainly not a five-goal thriller and certainly not in Watford's favour. Yeah, I was definitely surprised by this game as well. And I think that probably I didn't give Watford enough credit because they came out swinging and they yeah, took the game by the horns and really surprised Villa and probably a lot of fans as well. Yeah, I think 3-2 really belies the nature of this game. For most of it, Aston Villa were getting pasted up and down the pitch for like 70 minutes or so. Um, and then they got that late comeback. It was a really nice goal from uh, from podcast favourite John McGinn um, that sort of brought it back. And then Danny Ng scored one in the 97th minute. So it made it seem less bad than it was. So if you haven't watched this game, you might be looking at it and going, yeah, 3-2, you know, it's a bit of a hiccup for Villa, but they'll be back. They looked really, really up shit creek for a lot of this game. Emmy Martinez, who was one of the best players in the entire league last season, was not having the best game. The defence looked really all over the place. They couldn't string a lot of passes together in the midfield, but they were for nicking it. And then the, the pacey lads they had up front, whether it was Cujo Hernandez or Emmanuel Dennis, were having a real field day. Yeah, and I think um, the player I want to highlight from Villa that I think struggled was um, Marvellous Nakamba. I think that normally he's just this kind of assured defensive presence who doesn't make mistakes, and he was just giving the ball away against Watford. He really was, and I, I sort of wonder why that happened. Do you think it could be the Jack Grealish effect? Could they have been that demoralised by it, or is, is that just sort of is this just a real blooper? It seems weird from a team that you know didn't drop to my memory at least, and maybe this isn't true. Maybe I just feel this way because that's how they sort of 
flexed it, but they had a really good defensive record. They didn't drop a lot of silly points. A lot of the points they dropped were against sides that just played a good game on the day. And here, Watford did play very well, but Villa also played poorly. Yeah, I mean, I guess so the other player um, that they were missing, firstly, Ollie Watkins wasn't on the pitch. Um, and secondly, they also were without Douglas Louise, um, who was, again, a really assured midfield presence for them. And at times often was kind of the link between uh, defence, midfield and attack because he would start plays from deep um, alongside John McGinn, but then also would kind of arrive on the edge of the box and be a threat from from range. So I think they missed him as well. Um, I, I agree with you that it's strange because while, yes, you've lost a talismanic player, you've also invested really well. We talked about this last week. They've picked up a couple of really handy players and also got the likes of, you know, Ashley Young, for example, who for all reports that I've heard, has come in and massively impressed everyone from from minute one. So I, I agree with you. I'm not quite sure um, what is going on at the moment, but I do think you know it might just be the case that Watford took the fight to them immediately, and you know it hit them really well with three goals, and they took control of the game early on. But Villa definitely came back into the game. They scored too late. And they weren't without their chances. I just think that on the day, Watford just kind of knocked them over um, and, and kept uh, kept throwing fists while uh, you know Villa were uh, teetering Stunned, on the yeah. edge. No, it's very true. And, um, and you were right to sort of sing like Marvellous McNacamba, but I was surprised that Villa managed to lose the midfield battle because Watford rocked up with an almost comical sort of like rogues gallery midfield of like these <laughs> midfields. Like each one of them has had like a really weird, slightly different, but kind of similar sort of career. In the middle, they had um, Atebo who sort of couldn't quite cut the mustard at Stoke and sort of shuffled off and had, he had a real up and down time there and then end up at Watford and seems to have sort of, found his way into the first team which surprised me you've got Juraj Kutschka who at a time was at AC Milan I believe but then sort of yeah. ended up like bumming around all the Syria clubs I think he played for Sampdoria most recently and could never really like cut his way into a squad and was sort of not really finding his way around and again ended up at Watford and then Tom Cleverley who of course is the one that most listeners will be most familiar with who was like I mean What's even the way to say it? What's even the... He was sort of like the Jesse Lingard of back in the day, except in a world where Jesse Lingard never <laughs> had last season. Just like a Josh McEachran or any sort of, um, you know, English midfielder that didn't quite uh, make it in the end. Yeah, he, I mean... He, even more high profile, though, because he was playing for, like, that really good United... He was sort of, like, almost like true. the talisman of the, the United transitional... Like, they were going from, like, yeah, oh, look, yeah. we've had, like, Michael Carrick and, like, players like that in the midfield. And then it was handed over to Tom Cleverley. Yeah, so I remember watching the coverage of the Brentford Arsenal game and pundits were saying, you know, it's it's fun to see a side that we don't know much about because a lot of the time some of these seesaw clubs like uh, Watford are known entities. But the flip side is I love seeing players like Tom Cleverley getting another opportunity, another bite of the apple. You know, your Tom Huddlesons of the world that um, can come up and, and surprise you with some really, really solid play. And, and that's what happened today. I mean, the other players we want to single out probably would be um, the combination of Ismail Saar and Emmanuel Dennis, their new um, Nigerian striker, who it looked like they'd be playing together for years because they already have such a good um, combination play going. Yeah, the back and forth was really good. Um, and obviously there was Kutra Hernandez, another player who came on uh, for Manny Dennis, who scored a really nice goal. Yeah, lots to be interested and, and looking at with uh, with bated breath with uh, Watford this season. I don't think they'll have a lot of games like this, but I could be wrong. And they did show a lot of, a lot of gusto in this game and deservedly won it. Well, as we will see later with settling the score, we can always be wrong. <laughs> Certainly. Um, Newcastle versus West Ham was next. Another huge, huge thriller. Um, and West Ham did win this game 4-2, which is what you would expect the result to be, given the two teams' fortunes last season. But Newcastle were on top of this game for, for a little while and did look like they were playing some good football, which was, again, kind of surprising given how they, they rounded out last season. Yeah, well, I think... Um... I mean, I I just thought that Alan St. Maximum was so good on the day. Um, just played an absolute blinder. And every time he picked up the ball, I was just just loving the way he just breezed past these these players. Um, and they had a pretty solid back five, um, you know, and then they just allowed players like Callum Wilson to just do the, do their magic. And the goal really came out of nowhere, Callum Wilson's opener, because Maximum was, wasn't really going anywhere on, on the side, 
and then managed to after like three or four um, times of of trying to jink the uh, opposing defender, manages whip a ball in front post, and Callum Wilson arrived out absolutely nowhere, and they just stunned West Ham quite early on. Um, definitely were deserving of of their lead. Um, and I think actually, while West Ham ran away with this a little in the end, they can be quite disappointed, Newcastle, that that penalty was given to make it three two, and the game could have been different without it. Yeah, I, I think I agree. It, they didn't really give a lot of good angles on it, and it was it was a weird one because I the more I saw it, the more I was like, I don't think that was a penalty. But it was like a weird thing where he like came in from behind and sort of something looked to have tripped him up, but you couldn't tell if he'd like kicked the ground really hard. I didn't think it was a penalty um, personally, and I'm always obliged as as a sort of beloved football fan to go against the referee's decision. Um, so that's where I set my stall out, but not really based on anything. <laughs> Yeah, fair. I mean, it just looked like he touched the ball. Um, but, you know, sometimes that is uh, all it takes in a football match. And I still definitely, we can talk about this maybe later on in, in more depth, but I still definitely am supportive of this slightly more hands-off approach to VAR. Um, I think that a light touch is definitely the approach that we were lacking in the last season. No, absolutely true. But this game, aside from that, it was really the game of like the individual superstar. I thought Alan Samaximan had that great assist that like you've mentioned there. I think it's interesting as well how... Did he play this role that much at the back end of the season? I don't really seem to remember him coming inside that much. He was sort of playing like a almost like that that old forgotten second striker position, but also roaming quite a bit and sort of funneling out to the wings. I thought it was really an interesting way to play him um, and definitely something that you could see him as being very effective because we know Callum Wilson certainly was most effective in his, in his Premier League career as part of a striking duo. So maybe that combination is going to be really, really beneficial for, for Newcastle. And the other one I thought that was amazing... I just think Mikel Antonio is such a good player, and I, I really, really, really hope that this is a season where we get to see him just have an injury-free campaign, because there's so much to like about him. We've talked before about how sort of he's this super versatile guy, he's got a bit of non-league experience, he's played at, in League One in the Championship, he sort of has that hardiness that only comes when you've sort of gone through all the levels, but he also has a good level of flair, he has a good level of, sort of pace, trickery, and he, he, he reminds he's me... He's physical, yeah. He's physical. In, in a way... He's a bit like, and they're not exactly similar players, but just in terms of like their their careers and also the fact that like they've been at the bottom. They're both a little bit older now. Antonio was thirty last season. He's thirty one this season. He's a bit like a diet Jamie Vardy, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I I do know what you mean. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily disagree with you. I mean, Jamie Vardy would have been proud of of the goal that he scored. It was such an assured finish and one that we've seen from uh, the the older. Leicester frontman many times just um, hitting it as hard as he could across the keeper um, and oh, I agree Antonio's with you coming, yeah. yeah Antonio is um, a player that I also really enjoy and hopefully we can get more of the same um, I think that it's tough because he is so physical so he is always kind of pushing himself and I'm not surprised if that wasn't wouldn't be part of the reason why he sometimes gets injured quite quickly um, but yeah, I agree with you. I mean, West Ham on, on the surface of it have a really solid um, squad. They just are so often a side that you just can't predict. You just don't know whether or not they're going to capitulate as a club or put together a really assured performance. And they, they almost did a bit of both today. Um, so not today, but this weekend. Yeah, they definitely did. Uh, the, the Antonio thing, I mean, it's just funny to see someone who hits their prime at that age. Like, do you remember when he came in? Like, I think it was 2015, 16 when he came in. And, like, I have a, quite a few mates who support West Ham. And, like, he was such a polarising figure. People couldn't decide whether they liked him or not. And now he seems to have hit his prime at age 30, now 31, which is such a weird time. But, but yeah, no, you, you are right about the rest of their squad. They have some real, real talents. And they have some real players who, like Saeed Benrahma who looked really, really good for Brentford season before last, and then came in last season and kind of just didn't quite ever ever put his mark on the season. He had a, I, I want to say he had like a good three games to round out the season, but other than that, like the last three games, but other than that, had sort of struggled a lot. And then apparently has had like a really, really good, I haven't watched many West Ham preseason, but apparently has been doing really well in West Ham's preseason games uh, and was really good in this game. And he's one of those that you look at, there's so many West Ham players, including, you know, up to a couple of years ago, Mikel Antonio, that you go... Mm, could be a player on the, on our hands here if you can just figure out how to have a good game more than once in every five. Um, I thought Declan Rice was really good. I mean, he, he was really good last season, but he had sort of a, a more muted Euros than I was expecting him to, but he's back to doing very well. I think for one of their goals, it was just a 
colossal ball win from him, uh, where he sort of like won it and also passed it at the same time. Uh, and Thomas Suchek, of course, was in with yet another goal. How many will he get this season? Time will tell. But yeah, Rice and Suchek as you know the base of the midfield is just so strong, and it does allow players like Benarama to to you know do what they have to do further up the pitch. Jared Bowen also had a really good game. Could have scored a goal. Um, should have scored a goal. Yeah. Yeah. I should Shall... have maybe agreed. Shall we look at Usus Trivia uh, before we move into our last five games, which will be a little bit shorter because there's uh, less uh, high-scoring madness. Well, still, <laughs> still a fair bit of high-scoring madness. There definitely is, yeah. So, useless trivia. My piece for you this week is about a goalkeeping rule and a goalkeeper that exploited it around the turn of the 20th century. So, um, when football's rules were first standardised in 1863, there was actually no such thing as a specialist goalkeeper, and anyone was allowed to catch the ball but not carry it. In 1870, they kind of introduced uh, the role of a goalkeeper um, as an amendment to the laws, saying that the goalkeeper may, within his own half of the field of play, use his hands but shall not carry the ball. So this is all fine and good. You know, goalkeepers could go where they liked, uh, touching the ball with their hands in their half of the pitch. until a certain Welsh goalkeeper by the name of Lee Rose came along, who had a rather storied career at clubs like Arsenal, Villa, Celtic and Everton. And this guy was an absolute animal who was such a physical specimen that he became famous for flattening opponents and jumping up onto the crossbar when the ball was in the other half. So what he started doing was he would knock over the striker, running up the pitch, bouncing the ball all the way to the halfway line, like a modern-day rugby fullback, and start the attacks from there. And it became so overpowered while he was at the club that in 1912 they had to introduce a new rule, which is the one that we have today, confining goalkeepers to only handling the ball in their own penalty area. Absolutely exceptional. I, I thought you were going to say for a second there that he would sort of make his way to the halfway line and then, in a Dalapian feat of strength, hurl the ball into the back of the opposition net. <laughs> Not quite, but um, I think, yeah, he was just start, starting attacks from deep, um, just throwing it where he liked or um, kicking it where he wanted. That's fantastic. Uh, my useless trivia is about going unbeaten. Um, and to go a season unbeaten is perhaps the hardest thing to do in all of football. So much so that only a handful of clubs have done it in the modern era with, with 38 games. Um, but who is the team to have done and, and gone the most games unbeaten in a, in a sort of long long string? Um, that honour, of course, goes to Romanian side Stoya Bucharest, who many may recognise from their various European cameos uh, over recent years, who once went 119 games unbeaten between 1985 and 1989, winning five league titles, four Romanian Cups, and even the European Cup, beating Terry Venable's Barcelona in the final. So not just flattening the uh, Romanian opposition, doing a good European Cup run as well. Wow, that's that's pretty weaponous, isn't it? I mean, that team clearly knew how to win a game. <laughs> Can you imagine like the fans there when they were like the hundredth winning game? You must just like never have thought you were going to lose again. You must be like, this is it now. We run the sport. <laughs> this is we are football. Yeah, what do you think the odds were on that match to to lose for that hundred and twentieth <laughs> game? Do you reckon uh, anyone threw threw one down at the odds of like I don't know, well, like one hundred and fifty to one? I like to think that at the start of the run, someone did like a put a quid on them to win, and they just like keep betting the winnings. And at that point, they were like, "Keep going, keep rolling." It on. <laughs> well, by the end, it'd be like a put in two hundred quid and and get back two hundred and two quid. <laughs> two hundred quid, eight pence. Yeah, no, true. Well, if they'd been doing that, they would have eventually lost it all. Um, but that is a very impressive run of form. One hundred nineteen, four years without losing a game, which is insane. It ain't bad. It ain't bad. Hey, bad at all. Uh, looking at our next five games, Chelsea 3, Crystal Palace 0. An interesting game here. Chelsea not starting the 11, I think a lot of people thought they would, although I think the um, European Super Cup definitely played a part in that. It was 120 minutes plus penalties. So some players like Kai Havertz um, and uh, Antonio Rudiger, I think it was, didn't start. Um, uh, Rudiger played. Who, who else was who messed, left it? Ben Chilwell. Ben Chilwell was another one that we, that we all thought was going uh, sure. to play. And, uh, and didn't make it into the into the eleven, but not to Chelsea's detriment, who ran away 3-0 with this game. They did, yeah, and I think um, yeah, it's easy to think that maybe Pulisic wouldn't start, but then he actually has a really good uh, record against Palace, and that was extended uh, on the weekend when he got one of the goals. Um, it was quite an assured performance from Chelsea. Palace didn't really offer much. Definitely, uh, you know, going to take a, a little bit of time for uh, Patrick Vieira, the new manager, to 
get used to the players and you know establish his own his style onto um, onto them. Um, but yeah, I mean, apart from Trevor Chalaber having a debut Premier League match to remember, I think um, it's pretty much business as normal. Timo Werner still missed a bunch of chances. Mason Mount looked pretty good. Jorginho and Kovacic in the middle were strong. Chelsea were really solid defensively. And Palace didn't really have a lot going forwards. Yeah, I think Vieira came straight out, didn't he, and said, like, we're not really surprised by that. I think he basically said what you just said. Like, business usually, he was like, look, it's the first game. We need to we need to figure things out. A lot of the players we want to play are still going to come in. I'm still personally very excited about the sort of mad front three that'll come out at some point of Eze, Zaha, and Olize, um, that will just be like everyone doing step oh, yeah, and not scoring. <laughs> For now, it's just Jordan Ayew. So no stepovers and also not no scoring. Exactly, um, but yeah, it was it was it was not a game that had a huge amount of takeaway just because Chelsea looked good. Um, obviously, Marcus Alonso came in, who didn't he doesn't usually expect to play for Chelsea, and scored a really nice goal. Uh, Trevor Chalaman did it, and Timo Werner, yeah, as you mentioned there, just he still can't do it. And it's like this was maybe like his. Oh my gosh! That, wasn't wasn't Lukaku announced on the day before or the day of the game? Something like that. I think it was the day before. Yeah. So, so Timo Werner would have been starting the game is like, this is literally last chance saloon. <laughs> it's like, all, all the chips are down, you've got your chance to stake your claim for the starting spot, and he just had a stinker again. I mean, there was one where, um, it was actually another really good ball over the top from Trevor Chalibur, and Timo Werner just absolutely skewed it, and I don't know if it went out for a, a throw-in or a, or a goal kick, but it wasn't anywhere near the goal, I can tell you that much. Um, although, you know, I would say that I would hope uh, that Tuchel will switch to a two-striker formation because Timo Werner plays great in that, like he did um, with Poulsen at RB Leipzig, and Lukaku plays really well with that, like he did with um, Lautaro Martinez at Inter Milan. So it seems like a bit of a no-brainer that, at least at times, Chelsea will play with a 3-5-2 or a 3-4-1-2 um, with someone like Ziyech or Havertz or Mason Mount in behind the two strikers um i could really see that working for them i don't i wouldn't say that it's going to spell the end of timo Werner's time up front for chelsea just you know adding another extremely competent um offensive arrow to what is a, a very stocked quiver that, that is true and it would be interesting to see because as you pointed out there yeah both of those two players have had their most success in systems that have had two strikers I just feel like in the Premier League, weirdly, and it sounds weird to say because when we were growing up, four four two was all the rage. But these days, like every top team is kind of scared of a four four two, and I feel like maybe Tuca will break the mold and do the whole three five two Conte thing. But I feel like if you were to go for a four four two or a front two in any form in the Premier League, the the forward that you would probably go for to partner Lukaku would be Kai Havertz to sort of have that sort of role where he, we know he can play as an out-and-out striker when necessary, but he can also drift wide and he can also drop drop back to sort of be that number 10-slash-false-9 role. Um, I might be wrong, don't know too cool, but it just it seems to me that would be the more sensible choice if you were going to play a front two. Um, yeah, I don't disagree with you. I think the, I would say that they just offer tactical variety because if you're playing against a team that is going to sit high and look to challenge you for possession, then you probably would want Timo Werner because he makes great runs and he's really quick. But if you're looking at a side that is going to sit back with a low block and just try and absorb pressure, then you are going to want Kai Havertz because he's more creative and he's also, you know, like 6'2", so he's going to get in the box and get his head on things similar to Lukaku. Um, So I wouldn't say that it's going to... Again, it's just different, different games will require different... Um, tactical setups, and I don't think it's the end for him. But Timo definitely didn't do himself any favors. What, what a boon, by the way, that'd be for both Reese James and Ben Chilwell if they did go to a four-four-two with Havertz and Lukaku. Because both of them can put in a good. Well, that's cross. The thing. they're so good at crossing both of them. As is Marcus <laughs> Alonso, actually up top. Yeah, as is Marcus and as Pilaqueta. Um, um, yeah, so exactly. So they can put in a good cross, and if you had those two in the box, seventy percent of the time someone's getting on it, and half the time of that it's going to go in. Well, there you go. Um, Moving on to another 3-0, Liverpool beating Norwich, um, as they are wont to do, um, historically, getting uh, putting some goals past them. And I thought Norwich looked pretty good at the start of this game, but just uh, allowed themselves to be overtaken. 
Norwich had their moments for sure. I think they facing a slightly worse goalkeeper than Allison, who is probably top three in the world, they would have got at least one goal here. Uh, there was that chance very, very early on that Allison stopped quite well, and there was one later on. I want to say it was sort of 70, 80 minutes in that like Allison made this ridiculous series of saves to keep it out, and I was watching it. And I was like, how has that not got in? Um, I was. You know, pretty pleased for my fancy football team, which features two Liverpool defenders that it didn't go in. But from a, from a neutral standpoint, <laughs> I was like, "Oh my god, how's that not going in? That's insane!" Um, yeah. So this is a this is a game that you actually predicted dead on. You t- said it was going to be three nil Liverpool. Um, what were your what was your thinking going into the match? I mean, just basically what you said at the start there. We've seen this game a lot of times. I didn't really think Norwich were going to manage to score against the Liverpool side that had Van Dijk back, that had, you know, obviously missing Robertson, but Simicast did look good in that preseason game when he came in and having sort of Alexander-Arnold fully rested. I, I just didn't really see how, unless they really caught them with their pants down early doors and got a sort of surprise pookie goal in the first two minutes, which nearly happened, um, how they were going to score in this game. Uh, and they did get more chance than I thought they would, but... Again, I knew they were going to have Allison, who is just so good at, at cleaning up when people do get through the defence. Um, and then looking at that attack, I mean, it was business as usual, really, for Mohamed Salah, who scored for his five season, fifth season in a row on the opening day, which is a record, Premier League record, which is quite, quite a cool record to have. Um, Yossa is continuing to look good, sort of operating in those spaces. Even Firmino added his name to the score sheet. So, yeah, I think it's it, it, it was tough for me to see this not going in a 3 0 esque fashion, maybe a 4 0 or something, but I, I settled for three in the end. There you go. And uh, I'm sure Liverpool will definitely face sterner opposition in the weeks to come. Um, next, we saw. Uh, uh, Everton and Southampton. Next, we saw Everton and Southampton, the sad boy derby. We did indeed. And it was. Well, I wouldn't say anything but, because I, I do still like to personally believe that they're all playing, like, Evanescence in the dressing room and getting, like, really upset about things. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, so, no. There's a nice Travis in there. It was a, it was a game that was sort of characterised by... A little bit of an Everton mistake and a fantastic finish by Adam Armstrong, which is a great way to sort of mark your debut. But then Everton fighting back really, really well from a goal down. Um, and a lot of the players coming in that we have sort of got to know as being great, it was the heavy lifters, the Richarlison's and the, and the Calvert-Lewins, and obviously also Abdoulaye Decore, who I think is just a top, top player and could theoretically be playing at, a, at an even better club. Um, but just doing really, really well to bring the game back. It's kind of... It's weird because there's been a lot of chat about Everton recently because of the whole Rafa Benitez thing. And a lot of pundits have been saying like, oh, you know, Benitez, like what really can he do with this team? Like it was the same with Ancelotti. What really can he do with this team? They haven't got the players. And I just don't know that I necessarily agree with that. I don't think they've got the squad, but I think that Everton have a good 11 if it can stay fit, which is a big if. But they do have some quality players. And in a game like this, that showed a team went 1-0 up against them and they didn't just come back to a draw. All, all of their best players sort of stepped up, got a really exciting series of attacking players together and and brought about to 3-1. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely shades of uh, the Spurs game earlier um, as we saw, you know, a great player in Hamas Rodriguez being unable to play and then a lot of the other, um, you know, characters stepping up and saying, well, this is why, you know, we're in the side. Um, and yeah, I mean, we said sad boy Derby at the beginning. They definitely both went into this um, with the ability to lose it and look miserable doing so. But I was impressed with Everton. They seem pretty put together, apart from the fact that they, you know, let Southampton um, score the, the opening goal. Um, yeah, it, pretty balanced. Tamari Gray looked good going forward. Andros Townsend had a great game. That's a really savvy purchase or acquisition um, from Everton. And yeah, Richarlison and DCL doing what they do best. So it's a very weird one, Andrews Townsend, but much like we were saying with like Ashley Young, seem like both weird signings, but apparently, by all accounts, I've had like good times settling into the club and it's been more on the side of Premier League experience than old fart turns up to collect salary. I guess so. Um, yeah, I mean, I, Andrews Townsend, I think, um, really suits uh, Everton in the sense that, you know, both Dominic Cavalloon and Richarlison are great in the air, and Andrews Townsend is nothing if not a really good crosser of the ball. Um, so, in theory, a match made in heaven. 
Next, we look at Burnley Brighton, which bizarrely had more than one goal. Uh, actually had three times that. And it's really interesting to see Brighton uh, picking up a really important skill, something that they, uh, they didn't have so much of last season and something that I think could be a really important part of their season. Uh, that skill is, of course, scoring goals. Uh, they turned on really well in an attacking phase uh, to shut down this game and just come alive, which is not something we saw them do a lot of times last season. Sometimes when they did have sort of a 3-3 three, three or something, it'd be sort of goals scored at different, like one goal be really early one goal be really late and here they switched on I think it was over the course of about five minutes that they had those two goals to answer Burnley's very very early goal um and Burnley just didn't really look up to it it's interesting because we've sort of Turf Moore has sort of become like the new um uh, it's called the Bet365 now, but what was it called back in the day? Britannia. Um, Britannia. People were like, people, people were like, oh, such a hard place to go. Is that re- is that true of Turf Moor anymore? Is it a hard place to go? I feel like that's just rhetoric people trot out, but it's not actually true. I think um, the cracks were appearing last season, definitely the beginning uh, when Burnley were having a really tough time and were languishing in the relegation zone. But again, Sean Dyke pulled another... Um, you know, magic trick out of his sleeve and managed to turn it again into a place that was difficult to to go to. I, I still think it is, but um, I think um, Brighton, I, I would just say Brighton are actually not a bad attacking outfit. They just never really seem to be on the same wavelength. But in theory, they've got a bunch of players that can create. Pascal Gross is a really good creative player. Um, Leandro Trossard, again, can do a great job. And Solly March looked fantastic at times last season. So, you know, they're not without their um, their talented um, players going forwards. It's just rare that, you know, even one of them, if if, if not, you know, more than one, uh, are on song. So I, I kind of feel like for Brighton, it's going to be, can they bottle the lightning that they've managed to show against Burnley, even if it was only for like the space of about five, ten minutes? Yeah, no, it's very true. I mean, yeah, a lot of it often decide, like um, falls to whether their striker, be that Neil Morpé or whoever else, can sort of actually turn up, which which he did today. And, uh, you know, if he has that for the full season, Brighton could be a, a good outfit, certainly better than their usual position of 17th slash 16th that they seem determined to carve out. <laughs> it's it's a strong niche. Um, it's not one, you know, they uh, they have a lot of competition for. Um and it, it looks like it could well be theirs again. I, Brighton could have a good season, I think, um, but time will tell. Leicester Wolves was the final match that we'll be talking about this week, and Leicester managed to sneak it 1-0 um, in, in probably what was really, I guess, just expected. Low scoring, um, both quite uh, defensive, standoffish players, and Jamie Vardy managed to, to nick a winner. So to nick a nice little winner, and it was an exciting game for none of the reasons that you would expect it was it wasn't really an exciting game in terms of the football player but it was exciting because I could see Pat and Dakar sitting there on the bench and I was like I was Leonardo DiCaprio from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood I, was like, <laughs> <laughs> um, I see you and of course Samari, who actually did play um, so those two players very very you know, non-involved cameos from from one obviously didn't play at all, and one only played for, for for a little bit. But two players, I'm very very excited to see. So that that carried my excitement for for the majority of the game. Um, Wolves, I suppose, in only conceding one, you could say have have been good to not completely fall to pieces with their their fearless leader Nuno gone. Um, Bruno Lager has come in and. You know, it is a loss. It's not a terrible loss against a team that was top four, top six material last season. So can we expect big things from them this season? Probably not. Can we expect a complete meltdown? Probably, Probably also not. Also. not. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely the Wolves that we know under Nuno. Um, you know, the the new manager um, came in and Bruno Lache, I don't know how to pronounce that, sorry. Um, but came in and, and doesn't seem to have changed much, at least yet. Um, but then again, you know, as you said there, Wolves are a really stable squad. And a, a stable unit because they they know what they're about and they do it well. Um, so I do feel like maybe they're going to need to come up with a couple of new ideas um, and keep Raúl Jiménez and Adama Traoré fit um, if if they're going to challenge for the top half of of the table this season. But um, the you know the the signs are there that they're not going to you know the wheels aren't going to fall off. Yeah, no, it, it, it ho- hopefully looks like that way so far, because they had some, not not just like, a, oh, I hope Wolves don't do badly, but just they, they were tough to watch last season, they were not a pretty side, um, so I hope that at least if they're going to be a not pretty side, they can have some results to match, because they didn't, they, they didn't have either last year. Definitely, yeah, and also, you know, I guess um, 
what else to say about Leicester? I, I mean, James Madison will have better days, as will Yuri Tielemans, as will Harvey Barnes. You know, they did enough. Uh, Ricardo Pereira looked great. Um, but, you yeah, both both these teams, I'm sure, will uh, will show more of themselves in the coming weeks. Yeah, it, it was definitely a Leicester side that wasn't using everything that we know it can, whether it is these players like Sumari and Daka who have yet to come in, or Hianacho who, who came in off the bench. Uh, and obviously he was one of their starring players last season. Um, finishing us off with settling the score, we have done a little bit of a revamp to the way that setting the score works. So instead of going through our individual scores, Rupert and I are playing every week uh, beside ourselves, and we have a league table because the way that the scoring has changed as well. Uh, what will happen now is uh, we'll go through the results, and whoever is more goals off gets a point. You get a point for each goal you're off, and the aim is to have the least points at the end of the week, and there'll be a, a league table over, over all these things. Um, so as Rupert mentioned, we'll maybe bring it up if someone gets a exactly correct score, as I did with Norwich versus Liverpool, or I believe you did for uh, another game. Uh, Le- Leicester Wolves was the one I thought had 1-0 written all over it. And, and, and right you were. But other than that, we won't massively be going over it. Just to recap uh, what the points are and the league standings at the end of every week. So in our very first game week, uh, Rupert has won with 21 points compared to my 22. So only one point in it, one goal difference across 10 games. Um, Glory. Glory indeed. It's, it's going to be a, a big season, a hotting season, a hot season to hot up. I hope that we manage one, to stay. One that you're going to have to, uh, yeah, really turn up to, to beat me and, and reclaim the title of... Uh, most most knowledgeable about football uh, within our our duo. Um, well, here's a question: Was last season your Liverpool season, or is this season my Liverpool season? Like, which one's the anomaly? <laughs> which one of us <laughs> is Man City going to come back and just go, "All right, get out of here. Stop pretending you can play with the big boys." Well, hey, all I'll say is, you know, I've won week one. You've won week one. I think I won week one last season, though, and look how that turned out for me. So that may well be true. A good sign. All that uh, and more to play with next week. Uh, Cam, great to talk to you. Rupert, cheers for talking. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Cheers, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshel.